talking logistics, man. Ready to talk logistics? But how? It can't be done. We should probably figure out some logistics. Obviously, with supply chain, the huge topic that we're talking about, which is what are alternative methods? Is there a way to bring in automation? Is there a way to reduce the number of factories that you're working with to become more important to one particular factory versus multiple factories? That's Elise Kay, CEO of Bloom Bras and Head of Product Innovation and Development at AHA Product Solutions. The innovation behind Bloom Bras came from NASA, shipping and packaging experts, and a celebrity corset designer. The company was named BuzzFeed's top female-led companies to watch in 2018, with features in Huffington Post, Thrive Global, New York Post, Women's Health, Elite Daily, and dozens more. With AHA Product Solutions, Elise helps get her clients' products out on the shelf by assisting with messaging, design, functionality, and pricing. On today's episode, Elise and I discuss the challenges posed by so many factories refusing to work with startups, ways to reduce unnecessary packaging, and how e-commerce is allowing smaller companies to take bigger risks than ever before. So sit back and learn about creating partnerships with your manufacturer. I'm your host, Alex Kent, Director of Sales at Stored, and this is Supply Chain Therapy. All right, I'm here today with Elise K, CEO, Bloom Bras, and Head of Product Innovation and Development at AHA Product Solution. Elise, thanks so much for uh, joining and, and coming on the podcast. First off, how's everything going today? Everything is fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in the Bay Area, and uh, no complaints whatsoever. That's awesome. Well, good stuff. Let's, let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, you know, 60 seconds or less. Tell our listeners what, what Bloom Bras is. Absolutely. So I founded Bloom Bras out of frustration after years of not being able to find a sports bra that worked for me. Um, when I actually did a deep dive, I learned the statistics that 70% of women in the U.S. are now a D cup or above. One in uh, three women complain about not exercising because of um, being uncomfortable and none of the major brands were actually going after this market. So I said, it's not really a design flaw, it's an engineering challenge. I brought in people from NASA and shipping and packaging experts and a woman who did all the corsetry work for Oprah and Katy Perry and um, all of the ballerinas and opera singers. And I said, this is what I want. Can you help me bring my vision to life? So we're now the most body inclusive line on the market. We range in size from a 28C to a 56L, and we are entering our sixth year of business. How hard is it finding a manufacturing partner just to build the prototype or you know, produce all of the product that, that your customers are wanting? I wouldn't say impossible, but it was very difficult. So I got about 50 plus no's. Uh, so originally I wanted to manufacture in the US mm-hmm. and got a lot of no's. Uh, <laughs> and I was pretty hell bent on a sustainable approach. So we can talk about that afterwards, but sustainability in manufacturing and especially in apparel is a really big passion point for me. And so after all of these no's and a crazy story where I got a yes, and then we got all the way to the end of the line and pulled the trigger on production and the factory disappeared with my money and my my patterns and everything, I ended up building um, or helped to build a a sustainable factory in Sri Lanka. Hmm. So a joint venture with a group that was doing building a factory that used solar, wind, water, and local um, labor. And I needed somebody who could create a technical product and somebody who was willing to work with me on the evolution of design, but also that I felt really good with um, as far as that our values aligned. And Mm -hmm. so um, with my network and with, um, you know, with Bloom Bras kind of leading the charge, 
we were able to to escalate the building of that factory. So besides the one factory that took your money and, and went off, right? What what other mistakes or lessons did you learn along the way that you know you weren't expecting? Well, I think the biggest, and I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I think one of the biggest um, learnings was that there were not a lot of factories that would, um, even though, again, I have, in my world, I have an excellent uh, reputation and a, a pretty extensive network in manufacturing um, a lot of them don't want to work with startups and I, yeah. and having gone through it now, I, I actually, I get it. Um, right. you know, from minimum orders to, uh, fluctuation in pricing. And then obviously what's happened in the last couple of years with the, uh, shifting landscape and retail, but also escalating shipping costs, escalating, um, costs for materials escalating cost of labor, but decreasing cost of what consumers actually want to pay. There's a lot of challenges that companies like mine have been facing. And so I think more and more factories are looking for these unicorns and more and more uh, startup brands are looking for vendors that will work with them. On that piece, are the manufacturing partners not willing to work with startups because of there's a risk there that, you know, hey, we're going to invest in this capital and, and start producing this product and it may never take off. It, it's kind of like they're looking for a lottery ticket that's like, oh, we're going to get in and then we're going to be set, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, there's some of that element and then there's also the element of inconsistencies. So I'll, I'll mm. give a different example, right? So if you're working with, let's just say Nike, right? So Nike will book out their their manufacturing for years in advance. So they'll say, we're going to order 100,000 pairs of sneakers that fit this this mold. We might mm-hmm. just change the colors. Um, here's, here's our forecast on sizing. Here's what we're willing to pay for it. And and here's the terms that we're going to to work with. With a startup brand, most startup brands, even the best D2C brands, uh, are not great at forecasting. Um, and they're not great at necessarily saying, here's our vision for the next 10 years. Um, here's right. how we're going to achieve that. And so I think there's a lot of risks with working with startups. That being said, you're seeing now, and this is this is what's been so exciting for me. I advise uh, dozens and dozens of startups uh, in this space and in other consumer product space about supply chain diversification. And now you right. are seeing a lot of that come back to the U.S. And you're seeing much more, much, much, much more um, emphasis put on smaller runs, local runs. And even if that means it's at a higher price, price, higher cost, um, the consumers are willing to pay that, which is a a shift in behavior that that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think, you know, touching on that a little bit, just the supplier diversification. How do you coach other brands on that? And I mean, how do you you look at their their manufacturing network, their supply network now, and you're like, hey, this may be a problem. I mean, we've all seen it the past three years, right? Right. You know, hey, this facility is shutting down because of a COVID outbreak, or I, I remember the ice storm in Texas, right? There were right. warehouses that shut down because, hey, there's no power, right? I mean, it's so important and you just can't, as a, as a business and as someone that's producing products, you can't just stop, right? Right, well, and I think that's where this, this opportunity right now and a disconnect on 
and the way that business used to be versus the way that business is today. So you're seeing more and more folks, I think, look and say, well, if I've got 32 components that go into my product and uh, the majority of them are coming from overseas, Mm -hmm. I can't rely that this supply chain is going to be consistent. And so if that means paying higher prices for some of those components and buying them locally or um, bringing product over that that's being stored here or different methods of, I would say, manufacturing that um, that are automated in the U.S. that they can utilize instead of using overseas labor. It's again, even if there is a cost associated with it the reliability and the time and the speed, and then again, the sustainability piece of it, I think are becoming bigger factors in decision-making than um, than they had been previously. 100% agree with you there. It's, um, you know, I, how many times have we seen or, or seen on the news, a, a, you know, oh, we're out of this certain component of this other product that goes into it. I'll just give you a quick example. So with one of my clients who, um, you know, they, they've been doing amazing business, especially during, uh, the pandemic, it's a glass baby bottle company. Mm. And two years ago, we were paying somewhere around $3,500 to $3,800 for a container. Uh, there was a time last year where the quote was coming in at 44000 And wow. instead of it being two weeks, going to be uh, 24 weeks. So those type of things have made it so that it's unfortunately, we don't have the opportunity anymore to uh, to not make these changes. Right. You talk about inventory planning, but just product availability, right? And then you, you're coming downstream. We're kind of starting upstream in the supply chain right now, talking about manufacturing yeah. and all the different components. And then you talk about downstream, how much space do we need in our warehouse? Yeah. How many employees do we need to fulfill orders? You know, you right. start going all the way down. And um, I think talking about the, the upstream supply chain and, and just, you know, where it starts, there's there's way more issues there that, that aren't talked about today, for sure. Yes, I agree completely. Cloud supply chain combines the speed and flexibility of the cloud with the physical infrastructure required to compete. Want to learn more? Download our ebook, Cloud Supply Chain for Dummies. I mean, savvy brands. And find out for yourself. Go to store.link slash dummies to get a copy. Now, back to the episode. All right, well, let's get into our next segment, uh, all about challenges. Houston, we have a problem. So you've mentioned on other podcasts that the idea of supply chain fulfillment logistics, there's a ton of fires put out, right? So what are the the main issues that you and, and the customers that you advise on, what are they dealing with each day? What are some of those fires that pop up? Obviously, with supply chain, that's a huge topic that we're talking about, which is what are alternative methods? Is there a way to bring in automation? Is there a way to um, reduce the number of factories that you're working with so that you become more important to one particular factory versus um, you know, multiple factories? Are there things that you can reduce? Like, for instance, with packaging, mm-hmm. if you have six components to your package, can you bring that down Um same thing with with um, a lot of the direct to consumer brands. Can you instead of having four hundred products on your site, can you bring it down so that you don't run run that risk? Um, there's been huge challenges in changing algorithms. So whereas it might have been a certain um, customer acquisition cost a year ago, 
those numbers have skyrocketed. And so, um, so I know a lot of the companies that I'm working with right now, that's a big discussion point that we're always having, which is how do we, uh, how do we deal with that? What are more creative ways that we can start to market to a a more specific target Mm -hmm. versus being broad? There's, a lot of companies I know right now that are trying to reduce the reliance on Amazon because Amazon keeps upping the ante on costs. And I think right, right now it's something like 72% of products sold on Amazon are coming directly from China. And I think everybody knows that that's a big risk right now. Right. And Amazon just, I think it was last week, we're recording this in August, but they just announced their own peak surcharges, right? Yes. Which is kind of one of the first times I think we're seeing that from Amazon, but um, definitely probably we probably could have predicted that. And as that, a small given- business owner, there's the peak surcharges, but also some of the other big challenges that they're throwing out there with escalating costs, with escalating competition, and with them actually knocking off and doing their own private label as as a big strategy. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We, we hear that a lot from from founders. So what are three individual challenges that, that you are facing, that brands that you're advising are facing in regards to supply chain? And, and how are you addressing those individually? Well, so so supply chain is one of the big challenges. So one one of the areas that I'm advising quite a bit on is ways to look at alternatives, whether that be reducing um, the number of factories so that you become more relevant um, to a, a particular factory, reducing the number of SKUs. If there's a way to uh, bring some of the manufacturing back locally. So, for instance, if you're buying packaging from China and there's multiple components, but you could buy those same components or reduce the number of components and you could buy them locally. It's not that much of a difference uh, in pricing when you add in shipping and uh, frankly on reliance of getting the actual product uh, to you uh, in a timely manner. Second thing, and this is a little above and beyond supply chain, but when you look at your customers and you look at companies like, for instance, Amazon or, or um, advertising on Facebook, those mm-hmm. those costs have skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Right. And we're seeing higher customer acquisition costs and, and lower um, return on investments. So are there ways to look at um, your marketing plans to be more relevant today and to reduce those costs? And then the third area is is really with diversification of SKUs and, and products. Is there a way to reduce that so that you um, can be much more, I would say, thoughtful with your product lines as well as targeting of customers? So those are probably three areas that I I get asked to advise on most. And then Mm -hmm. I will just say like on a personal level right now, um, you know, we're coming out of a a pretty wacky time. And so consumer behaviors that we talked about earlier have shifted. (laughs) And so there's a lot more pressure and opportunity on sustainability. And so I think that that gives us as brand owners and as supply chain folks and as consumers uh, a way to rethink ways that we've done things traditionally in the past. I, I kind of want to key in on one thing there. When, when you're talking about a product catalog and, and you know, looking at the sustainability factors, say you're advising a, a founder or, you know, a, a newer D2C brand and they're like, we want to expand our product catalog. We want to expand the number of SKUs that we're offering. And, you know, you spoke about it earlier and, and how do you reduce that SKU count? Kind of reverse of that. When someone's like, I want to add more products, 
Yeah. How do you advise them to, to go about that? So I don't ever say don't add new products. I think mm. new products is the only way that a brand and a company can actually grow. But I think it's being more thoughtful. So I'll give you an, an example of a company that I recently had, uh, was advising. So when I came in, there were they had about 850 SKUs. And, um, you know, the, the rule of thumb is you 80-20, right? So right. 80% is coming from 20%. In this case, it was like 80% was coming from about 5%. Oh, and man. so we actually did the deep dive and said, do you need these products? The answer was a resounding no. But then when we looked at the products that were doing really well, um, in this case, it was a pet company. So we said, okay, so these are the products that are doing well. How do we build on that? How do mm -hmm. we make maybe a product that's a hero product? How do we build a story around that? Or how do we take that product and then remarket it to different pet parents? And, right. uh, and how do we take something like this and maybe make it so that there's products that can be bundled together? And by doing that, our profitability rose 450% in a year. And obviously with SKU reduction, that meant that we had less reliance on certain factories. And it also meant for us, because they did there's a retail component for this particular client of mine, we actually were able to not just protect the space we had, but to grow the space, which in this day and age is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think talking about the consumer shift to, to go back to the previous question, you know, the, mm -hmm. the shift in consumer expectation and, and retail coming back, I'll, I'll call it coming back. Retail was yeah. never gone. We, we thought it was dying a little bit, but eventually we all knew it would come back. And I mean, when you're talking about a, a brand portfolio and their portfolio of products, are you recommending that they have a, a, a split or is it different based off of brand, you know, saying, hey, let's aim to do this much of sales in retail, this much direct to consumer, or is it just, hey, let's build great products and, and see what hits first? So I think you have to be strategic in that because there's a lot more risk in, in working with retail and, mm -hmm. and but a lot more reward, right? So obviously you get volume. So if you're working with a big retailer and they, let's just say, you know that, that you've got X amount of shelf space that they're allowing, um, you have to make sure that that shelf space is constantly turning. So in a lot of cases, um, it's less about the actual product. It's going to be more about the turns per product. Mm. When we're pulling together, it's called a, it's called a planogram. When you're pulling together a planogram, um, you know, you might have something where you're like, this would be really cool to try. <laughs> like, this sounds like it'd be amazing to try. I usually advise don't try it at retail. Try it, try it on, you know, a different platform because yeah. if it fails, you run the risk of losing that space and losing that slot. If you've got, you know, if you if you're a brand like Procter and Gamble who's had that, you know, or Coca Cola that they have they have a little bit more leeway to try something and to advertise it. But if you're not going to put the marketing behind a product, it's a lot easier to take the risk on a I would say a smaller platform. Mm -hmm. That being said, as we see from the rise of direct-to-consumer and we see more and more uh, purchasing power online, I think it's taking those type of products and letting those drive consumers in mm. to, uh, you know, from a level of excitement. And again, an example that I might give there is you may have something that is going to get a lot of press, you know, and right. they're going to be able to draw in maybe some celebrity or some influencers talking about that. You don't care 
if they buy that product necessarily, as long as they're buying other products. Right. And so you want to make sure that you've got enough products that they're going to sell and that you're not going to be a one and done. Uh, if you look at what's been happening in the world of direct-to-consumer companies that have raised a lot of money, and I want to say that this is different, but you know, you look at at some of the big ones, I, I won't name names right now, uh, that had these insane valuations or had IPOs or opened up tons and tons of retail locations that are right now tanking and, you know, and at risk of not being around in three years from now, a lot of those brands, um, you know, they, they grew too fast and they didn't, they didn't remain relevant. I think one of the things that we're learning, right, is that consumers are fickle. So if you don't have the next thing for them, you most likely are not going to be relevant in the next few years. I mean, I feel like we're already venting, Elise, but let's dive into to my favorite segment. Listeners know this. Moving on to the venting couch. So talk, vent. Come on, vent. Go ahead, vent. I just needed to vent. Why don't you vent? Vent your frustrations. We have all had traumatic experiences when it comes to logistics. Elise has been uh, teasing me, I, I would say, with some of the stories that she's prepared to tell. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you're ready to heal your relationship with your supply chain, check out store.com to learn more. So Elise, the moment of truth. What's the craziest story from your career that you want to share and vent about with the listeners today? Oh, well, I've got so many, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll give, can I give two? Yes. I'll give one that's I a mean, supply chain. All, and a, all right. I'm not, listen, good with that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give one that, um, that I like to tell because it was for a very big brand. that's still a client of mine today and they wanted to go into a new license category. And that's an area that I specialize in. And so they approached me and they said, you know, we want to be in this category. And um, all the research shows that it's going to be really great for us. And so we said, absolutely. So did this whole um, big ethnographic research, went into people's homes to see how they were interacting with a specific product. Turned out there was all these like fears and uh, opportunities. So we designed this beautiful product that won every award under the sun. Um, we had uh, exclusives being fought over from Target, Amazon, uh-huh. uh, Apple, and Best Buy. So, you know, we, we put this product out there and it tanked. Uh-oh. Tanked. I mean, as in, we did not recover our tooling costs, yet alone. Um, And the reason was we didn't tell people what it was. We thought that the brand and we thought that the uh, because we hit all these great consumer things and we won all these awards, that we're going to put it out there and that everybody was going to buy it. And it turned out to be one of the biggest failures, but also learning experiences of my career. The second one, which is the Bloom Bras story, was I worked with this factory that I was very excited about and we did all of the development together. So I paid them for the first portion for 50% of the product, um, gave them the POs and three days before the product was supposed to leave their factory and and come to me here in the US, um, I get a call from the CEO of this very large factory. And I mean, I had been, you know, we had been having these weekly or biweekly calls. And she said, I think there's a disconnect here. You seem to be thinking that you're getting product and 
we're not making this product. And I said, excuse, excuse me, what do you mean? I mean, like, you're not making it today. You're not going to make the shipment in three days. And she said, no, no, no. She said, the PM on this should have told you months ago, we don't want this. Um, you know, your quantities are too low oh, and it's no. too difficult of a product to make. And I said, well, you've got my money, you've got my patterns, you've got everything. And she said, yep, sorry about that. And so my three options were to scream and shout and to threaten right. to sue this factory that's offshore, right? So that's not going to work. Right. My second option would have been to say, you know, I'm throwing in the towel. Um, I gave it my all at this point, whatever. It's less than 10 grand that I've got um, invested in it. And, and it's been a lot of fun. Or the third option, which is the option that I ended up taking, was getting on a plane, starting to meet with other factory owners, um, going out and and pounding the pavement. And eventually, like I said, um, connecting with these two folks that were building a factory, which put us back over a year right. um, and was a much bigger investment. But it was something that I believed in and I believed in the brand. And so my venting couch was that either of those two first options would have been a lot easier. But right. this was the thing that I wanted to do more than anything in the world. And if if, uh, you know, if somebody's going into the entrepreneurial world and doesn't have that fire in their belly, I would suggest that they don't go this route. That's right. And even then, it probably puts more fire because they're like, you think you're going and they're producing your product. And then they're like, oh, well, no, this isn't going to work out for us. So, yeah, I mean, that's just firing you up even more. Right. Were you, were you taking like pre-orders at that time, expecting that shipment to arrive? How does that, how does that work with the customers? How do you like, hey, yeah, by the way, this is going to take it was, uh, 12 months. It was actually with my, you know, with my community, um, I was very honest with them the entire time. And every, you know, I, I was constantly updating. Um, I was constantly saying, listen, if you don't want this, that's okay. Or I can refund your money and I can, I can, I'm happy to, um, recontact you when we do have it. And I will tell you 98% of people just said, get me the product when you, when it comes in, Wow. you know, we love, we love the story. We like watching the journey unfold and you know, it's, it's a high ticket item at, at $79.99, but it's not a super high ticket. Right. And so I think a lot of folks in that space were just happy that somebody was listening to them and communicating. Well, that's an awesome story and, and definitely, you know, fired up, fires up the entrepreneurial spirit for sure. So thanks for uh, sharing that on the Vindic Couch. Moving on. Let's talk into the future. We've touched on sustainability. You know, I think it's more important in the eyes of the consumer. It's more important in the eyes of the brands now. Um, and, you know, how can we be more sustainable, right? And and how can we have our products not only, you know, continue to stand out and continue to sell, but making it better, right? And, and more sustainable. Mm -hmm. So on that note, what, what predictions do you have for the next two years in, in supply chain and, you know, direct-to-consumer retail and around the sustainability aspect? So I think, you know, one of the things that leads us off is that I don't think we're going to see these, um, these disruptions in supply chain. I don't think we're seeing them go away. I think that they're going to actually get worse. Um, especially just looking at some of the political climate and, um, and tensions, as well as increasing labor costs and, sh and shipping costs, even though a lot of that has come down from where we were a year ago, 
we're not going to see it come back to where right. it once lived. Uh, and so I think that that's going to drive a lot of institutional brands are now investing in uh, building huge manufacturing facilities here and, and in North America. You're seeing a lot more folks look at things like local manufacturing, um, reduction of uh, redundancies, reduction of waste. Um, automation in manufacturing is a really big thing. And, you know, I, I struggle with the whole sustainability in consumer products because if you think about, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Hemp as a material right. was a really big theme at one point. But if you look at it, it takes more chemicals to make that hemp usable than it does uh, saving, you mm. know, the the uh, whatever sustainability or whatever material reduction you might have had. Um, so hemp to me is greenwashing. Hemp, anytime people talk about mm. that as a sustainable material, my I want to raise my hand and say, you haven't looked into that material. <laughs> but you see it, right? You see it left and right. And so it's really getting down to the root. You know, it's the same thing with our consumer behaviors. As a direct-to-consumer company owner, I, I struggle with the word sustainability um, because if you think about, like, for instance, right, if you're buying a product on Amazon, for instance, um, and you're buying, let's just say, and I'm not going to say that I'm not, I'm not, there's no judgment here, but let's just say that you buy, oh, I don't know, three shirts because you're like, one of these will look good. Not return the other ones. Right. What people aren't understanding is that that product had to ship from a, a, a factory to a DC to a second DC with Amazon to your house. Then you try them on and then you ship it back those DC, DC, and then it goes back to the company. Well, most companies right now don't want to take it back. So it goes to a right. landfill. So right. now that, you know, 1999 shirt um, actually costs the environment a lot more. And so right. I'm really passionate about changing consumer behaviors so that we start buying higher quality products and that we um, be much more, you know, cognizant about even how we're manufacturing. So that's why I was saying earlier, if we can do smaller batches and local and start to reduce some of our reliance on large shipping from overseas, it's just going to be better for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. I return products all the time. Like, and do I think about it? No, but now I'm going to start. Good. Um, and it's one mind changed. Yeah, it's, hey, I'm, I'm going to order two shirt sizes and one's going to fit and one's not, and I'm going to return the other one, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you, like you said, and especially in apparel, I mean, let's let's be honest, apparel returns are, are hard enough as it is because you have to, I mean, we didn't talk about what happens in the DC if that product doesn't go to a landfill, but you've got to steam it, you've got to inspect it, you've got to repackage it, you've got to mm -hmm. reprice it and put a new tag on it if the tag is taken off. There's a lot of work that goes into that in apparel returns. I'd love to learn more from, from your perspective on that. Yeah, well, so the fashion industry right now is the number two contributor to, um, to the environmental uh, essentially dismay. Um, so, you know, fashion is, is the killer right behind essentially shipping. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so much of that comes down to us, our behaviors, um, our demanding of, you know, free returns and free shipping and all of that. I think changing consumer behavior is going to take a lot longer, but if we can do it one person at a time, that's fantastic. I also think we need to be demanding that of our manufacturers and of our brands Right. There's some there's some very, very, very telling documentaries out right now that pick on brands like H&M and Zara 
fast right. fashion. And so I think it's raised the awareness of just what a deadly business this is, because it, it truly is. Um, and, you know, for people and for the environment, I mean, we don't have to go into uh, so what happens at some of the manufacturing facilities. So, you know, I think the more that we can start to raise awareness to um, those who have building power, so the brands and the manufacturers and the buying power, which is you and I, mm-hmm. the more we're going to find change. And we see it a lot with, um, frankly, with the, you know, the up and coming, the younger generations where they are a little bit more demanding on a sustainable footprint and understanding where the product is coming from. But there was a, um, this is funny because I was listening to this podcast last week on, it was just a short, you know, 15 minute podcast, but it was around a group of young women that had, um, been purchasing on a very prominent uh, apparel brand site. We won't name the name, but had realized and, and had started talking to their friends about all of the different packaging that they got you know they order one thing and it's coming in you know one poly bag and sure they're loading all these poly bags into a box and shipping it and they call it i don't know some dump or something like you order a bunch of products try it on and then ship it back but they started making clothes out of the packaging because it was just so much and they just kept ordering and it's just not sustainable and and you know they are on this mission i forget the name of the group but they're on this mission to help reduce the packaging that a lot of these apparel brands are using and um if i find it i'll send it to you after this but please do please do i i you know it's it's interesting we when we ship to europe we we can't use poly bags so we actually only use poly bags for products that are going to the U.S. Mm. Because in the U.S., we've been trained that if it doesn't come in a poly bag, it's a used product. So again, it comes down to consumer, you know, consumer behavior and knowledge and and more and more people like the folks that you're talking about um, raising their hand and saying, this isn't right. Interesting topic. We can go on and on, but we do have to wrap up uh, here with Elise. So let's wrap up with some quick hitters. Favorite hobby outside of, of building brands, scaling brands? Travel. Travel. Favorite place? Ooh, it's between uh, South Africa and New Zealand. I have need, not been to either one, um, yeah. but maybe Put it one on day. on your list. <laughs> Last thing you bought online? Hmm, I have to think about that. Oh, my running <laughs> shoes. My running shoes. Okay. All right. How are, they, how are those working out? <laughs> They're great. I love them. I find when I buy shoes online, well, now I've got it down, but because I only buy really one brand of shoes. But yeah, me too. I also buy two, so that's that's a sizing thing. After this conversation, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all right, um, let's see here. Best concert of all time. Oh gosh, Prince. Oh wow, that's no more words to be said there. And lastly, if folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way to to get in touch and learn more about? everything you're doing, not only Bloom Bras, but AHA Product Solutions and, and everything else you're working on. Yeah, I mean, Bloom Bras or AHA Product Solutions, um, are any any email that is sent to either of those locations will um, get to me. Same thing with social media. And I encourage everybody to follow us, Bloom Bras, on social media because that's the way that we grow the brand. Um, and I answer pretty much anybody who ever reaches out because I think that's the way that, you know, that's the way that I've been able to build um, to where I am right now in my career. 
That's awesome. Well, Elise, thank you so much for coming on Supply Chain Therapy. Really appreciate your time. We could go on and on. Maybe we'll do this again and uh, you know, set, set up some more time to dive in deeper, but I really appreciate it and, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Know anyone who needs Stored's help? We have a new referral program where you could earn $5,000. Go to stored.link slash referral to submit and learn more. Bloom bras are the most body-inclusive line of sports bras on the market. Designed with NASA technology to lift versus squish for women's sizes 28C to 56L. Adjustable, breathable, comfortable, free of wires, and manufactured in a sustainable factory. For more information, please visit bloombras.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.